So, yeah, so when three men and one woman comes together and we're talking about men's brains, I don't know how this one is going to pan out, but uh, there's always something interesting. We were having a bit of banter beforehand. Um, sometimes we have to put the rain on Alexandro because he goes down this rabbit hole and a half an hour later, we're still talking about theory. I think this is a really interesting conversation. Um, I'll just give you a couple of brief sentences. In 2010, I started giving classes, bringing together breathing and mindfulness. And I went around Ireland and there was a huge economic crash here at the time. Property prices had went by half, massive unemployment. 3,000 people attended, but 90 to 95% were female. Men weren't attending. Once I put in anxiety into the, into the sentence or mindfulness and breathing back then, they wouldn't attend. And that's why Oxygen Advantage came about. We put a guy with a six pack in the front cover and it was all about changing the language. So this is bringing together four minds in terms of it's a really serious issue and untangling this. So we're welcoming Angela from Germany and Alessandra from Italy and Daniel Paulson from Sweden. So who wants to kick off, guys? Pass it to Angela. We'll go ladies first. Thank we'll be, you. We'll, ladies be, first. we'll be real men for a change. Huh? <laughs> for change. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Patrick. Yeah, thank you for um, creating this space. And I think it's a very important topic. I mean, 5% of the worldwide population is suffering from depression. And as you said, um, it's, it's of, according to the statistics, it's mostly women who seem to obviously suffer from depression. According to the statistics, women are twice as likely to be diagnosed with depression. Um, however, um, from my experience, it is um, that doesn't mean that men suffer less from depression. And when I was with corporates, for instance, um, I very often love to um, start my workshops by introducing what are the symptoms of depression. And then sometimes, you know, they look at me like, what do you mean? And I say, yeah, because men perceive or suffer differently from depression and they deal with it differently because just they're not in the statistics on the depression side that doesn't mean that they're not suffering from depression very often you find men with depression on the statistics for back problems um, knee problems stomach problems any other kind of problems because they are raised differently, society is treating them differently. And I think what is for me um, the most alarming case or the most alarming part about depression is that when it comes to the last stage, the really severe part of the uh, depression, men are four times, and I think this is really an alarming figure, men are four times as more likely um, to commit um, suicide and die by committing suicide. It's, it's amazing, Angela, your background, you're a life coach, so you're working with these individuals all the time. Um, I think there must be more though in, t in terms of, could a man, if he's depressed, would he feel burnt out? Would he be losing his temper? Um, would he be not able to get out of bed in the morning? Would he be more prone to alcohol? You know, would it be really drinking heavily? Is there other things as well like that that the average yeah. man could kind of resonate with? Yes, according to the statistics, um, men are three times more likely to um, drink alcohol or to take any other drugs. 
Um, so this, this also here, according to the statistics, this happens way more frequently in men than in women. Wow. And every day they are drinking alcohol. Or is it that they're going out for a blast on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it's affecting them then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Sometimes it's hard, that fine line. So I even myself, I don't know if I've ever been depressed, to be honest with you, but I don't know how to recognize it. Mm. You have symptoms for this. So usually in the world of mental health, we use one of the main books and manual, which is called the Diagnosticals and Statistical Manual for Mental Health. <clears throat> and it's been updated more and less every five years. For example, we had the DSM first, and now we are at the DSM 5 TR, which is a revised edition. And it is listed inside it all the different psychopathologies from anxiety disturbs, depression, sleep. You, <clears throat> if I can, I will send you one, Patrick, because it's very interesting because you have a wide array of symptoms and the diagnosis, including also asthma, uh, sleep. <clears throat> sleep disturb mood disorders and other kind of you have everything inside it and you have one specific section for depression and in that sex that section you have depressive symptoms depressive disorder systemic so depression over two years and you have depression which has more than six symptoms more and less but usually you can recognize it by different symptoms such as the first one are the loss of interest and the intense sadness that is perceived and you can literally see it on someone. And then you will see different outcomes, such as uh, a loss of weight also, or uh, difficulty, a certain level of irritability, or the will to don't do anything, or to, be, to stay at home, to sleep not enough, or to oversleep, for example. And there is one thing, and this is if you put the statistics and the theory apart, when I see someone, for example, with drug disturbs or overeating or not eating enough when those people tend to drink it is nice for me as a psychotherapist to notice that it is a way also for them to be in touch with their body you know for example people who smokes they want to they smoke also it's for the feeling of having some kind of endorphin sensations it's like if the body is on the background in the case of depression the fact of drinking for example it will be a way back to the body and to be on that way back to the body this is where instead of using alcohol you can use a breathing exercise and to rediscover yourself because you will alterate alterate positively your metabolism in order to feel because this is what you want you for example you you drink something and you are ah, this is a way back to the body can i ask so you somehow else? Probably in that book, you're going to see that depression is characteristic of a, a chemical imbalance in the brain. How much credence can be put on that? And the only reason I put it out there is if you have a perfectly healthy male and everything is going well and then shit happens. That can bring on depression, but they're perfectly healthy beforehand. So is it the life situation that's causing the depression? Is it the, like I often find my, you know, because if you if we say it's a chemical imbalance, then the only solution is to take chemicals to out to alter the mind. Whereas if it's because of a life situation and there's autonomic dysregulation and autonomic imbalance, surely then we should be focusing on trying to balance the autonomic nervous system. Can I ask, can I ask if I can go to the rabbit hole? <laughs> Please do. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to time so, you. So, okay, perfect. Go ahead. Daniel, can you add the timer? 
Thank you. Yeah, make it, make, it a, make it a mouse hole, Alessandro. Make it <laughs> Alexa, Alexa, five minutes, please. So how does it work? So you have a spectrum. This is the main thing that I've learned from my studies. First of all, you have a spectrum. And on this spectrum, you put all the biology-related situation and the other one, the all the life-existent situation. And one psychopathology will fall between those spectrum it's not it is biologic or no no it's not like this it will just oscillate for example you have a stroke the, what we notice after a stroke is that the brain is actually reassessing itself and people will go to depression so you can understand that this is the bio the the problem is more bio related and of course someone will intervene from a counseling situation but on the other wise on the other side for a life existence for example you have a very bad new or someone died in your family and when someone dies your body will answer through different biochemical outcomes and dynamics and it will hinder you for some time and in worst case scenario the depression that you may face the situation could be that this, it has been so shocking for you that you go into a full biological depression then and it's hard for you to recover and this is where the psychiatrist will come with for example his uh, psychopharmaceutical drugs because it is important for some people to have them in hand okay so what we use and what how we define for example those kind of psychopathologies is a multifactorial process the first one would be the life existence something that I appreciate from angela is the fact that she has come up with money for example yes if you don't have enough money it will reduce your life quality and if you don't have life quality it means that you can afford any health uh, conditions or you can do and uh, you cannot do any kind of additional experience for example or it will it will impact your biology it will impact your behavior this is what we call the bio psychosocial theory i don't know if i answer your questions patrick yeah no you did i think it's just it's fascinating angela and daniel um i i have another question if i might jump in here um because what I found very interesting when you mentioned, Alessandro, um, the the aspect of alcohol, that it connects you with your body. What I found also very interesting when doing research is that a lot of men who suffer from depression, um, they start also doing very intensive exercise and yep. that they also very often come into extreme sports. I, I did skydiving by myself. I'm a freediving instructor and athlete by myself. And I know a lot of people in especially us in the free diving world especially men who are now and more and more coming up and but also women and tell about their traumatic past so how do you see the connection in terms of these extreme sports with this coping strategy in terms of depression okay so the first one is going back to the body but very simple this is called for example for skydiving i will jump back on the skydiving uh for skydiving is a sensation seeking because this kind of sensation seeking phenomenon will give you a lot of adrenaline adrenaline will have a big impact on your autonomic nervous system arousal it will also give you for example the sensation of feeling well and you know have challenged yourself the way how you see at yourself back you can say Oh, good Lord, I did this in my life, you know, those kind of things. But this is for skydiving. Otherwise, for sensation seeking, for example, you have those one are the healthy one. Of course, if the sky 
diving is too intense and you don't take precautions can be a problem. However, it is also a way back to your body, but not only. Concerning drugs, for example, I talk about teenagers. For example, teenagers in certain difficult conditions, they will try, they will go and use and smoke, smoke cannabis and kind of other kind of noise. It's also a way to go back to your body and release a lot of endorphins because you have also, it can be reconfigurated in your experiences. Oh, snap, I feel good. I really like it. And you want to restart and to redo it every time once again. However, your body will be adapted to it every time. So there is this. And then you have physical exercise. But on concerning the physical exercise, there are two things. This, is, this can be a healthy way to go back to your body in order to have the same endorphins, the way how you, like, you take, take care of yourself. But also there is an identity situation right over there. How will I look also in the future? But it's also a good pathway. The problem is also you can release a lot of endorphins. This is why, for example, marathonians are well known for running, 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 until they are gazing out, and then boom, they have those kind of outcomes, opioid outcomes. I don't know if you've ever heard about that. I don't know, Daniel, you, for example, that a lot of marathonians, they run, they run because they have that kick of endorphins. Ultra marathon runners. Yes, for example. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, but the question is then, I have a question for you, Alessandro. Or, or and Angela, too. Can, can a depressed person enter a flow state? Like when you go into skydiving or freediving, are they able to, do you think, to reach those states where they feel good? That's why they want to get into it. Do you, Is that possible? Uh, literally, I will answer you instinctively. I don't know. I don't know. However... However, the shift of experience, I mean, if your everyday life experience is to be at home and looking at the ceiling for eight hours and crying because you can cry. And then imagine you have a friend, for example, and the friend and your friend is called Daniel Palson is bringing you to the plane, asking you to jump and you jump from that plane. And you have a shift of experience in your life that you are and you want to restart it back because there isn't another concept that I like is the concept in the in depression which is the loss of interest which is called also anhedonia anhedonia is the fact that you don't you don't have the will to have new feelings or you don't have the tools anymore and resources to have new good feelings you're there's a lot of interest but if you find in your friend this is why as a psychotherapist i include all the family or friends you find someone who help you to do in another experience a fascinating one something or going to a concert it is something that can release a lot of good, I would like to say, not only good things on your body, but also the way how you experience, you change your experience. And just by changing it, you will have new tools to look at yourself through. And this, yes, you can enter in a flow state, or maybe not, but in the same situation, you can say, snap, I did it, it was nice. Why, why can I not maybe restart it? How many people from depression are recovering because they've tried something different? They go into sport. There are good competitors then. I'm talking about professional athletes that I know. Or they kept on, or thinking, for example, about Phelps, who had a lot of issues from a psycho, uh, psychology perspective, had a lot of issues, mental issues, the, the swimmer. ADHD and thanks, in that. Yes, and thanks to those kind of new experience and the way how he received the tools from the sport mental health consultant, it, had, it has been possible for him to look at himself through it and change the way of existing and reproject himself. But I don't know if it thing. makes sense, guys. Oh, sorry, sorry, Alex. 
just coming back to Daniel's question, is there another thing? If you're jumping out of an airplane, you're not going to be thinking. You know, you're 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 too concerned with staying alive. If you're doing high intensity exercise, you're not thinking. If you do the Wim Hof method, you're not thinking. If you're hyperventilating, you're not thinking. And that just asks me the question then. Why do people, when they are depressed, go to the extremes? Why not go to the more gentle stuff? Surely if the autonomic nervous system is already in this fight or flight response, does it make more sense then? Does it make sense for them to be going into an even more fight or flight response? Or am I reading it incorrectly? Angela, go ahead. I don't want be, I don't want to be shotgun now. I don't want to be the only one talking. Um, I'm 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 curious about the answer here as well because um from my own experience I agree with Patrick and I also want to come back later to um, Daniel's question with the flow state um because I don't want to compare free diving and skydiving here. I did skydiving in the past when I was by myself very much in this type A corporate world level. And for me, it was exactly what you mentioned, Alessandro. Um, you, you, you jump out of the airplane. And for me, it was pure bliss because I had the 60 seconds of free fall and you're not thinking about anything else like your job, what, what's on your email or on your calendar. You're just 60 seconds purely with yourself, with your body and purely in this moment. You don't have any other chance than being with yourself and in this moment. It's it's very different with free diving, but I would like to come to that later also maybe when we come to breathing, because in free diving, it's really all about mindfulness and you really have to find ways to regulate yourself down. So I would like to give that question that Patrick just raised back to Alessandro with this distraction why is it so important for them to get into the state but there is a thing uh i mentioned that i sent it to you also guys last time on the master instructor group and uh, there is a thing yes maybe you don't want to think but also patrick uh, you don't need any intense experience in order to don't think look at look at netflix people that are watching netflix all day long you're not thinking okay you're not thinking you're not thinking because something is I would like to say thinking at your place, but you're binge watching. Why? Because your all your focus is directed over something. I, I can feel it when I'm watching a nice movie, for example. I don't think about my problems. We don't think about those kind of things. But all our problems are focused on TV. But then it's also a way to avoid the nagging pain that is in the background. My responsibilities, my emotions that are stuffed inside it and are that are doing my everyday life and that are mentioning and actually building my everyday life and all those kind of things. So no, if, for example, some people have the resources and outcomes in order to, uh, to, to pay Netflix and to watch Netflix or video gaming or also smoking cannabis, it will be a way to have no thoughts. However, the price that you have to pay is really among us. It's a, it's a, terrible, it's a terrible buzz, I have to say. And you know, any of us side. have smoked it. It's for me going through university, and I think part teenagers do it because they think it's it's great and it's it's absolutely terrible. The next morning you're just all over the place. Yep. And it's also a way to tame down the pain, you're just taming it down, and that's it. But on the other side, what is of what is not helping people to practice breathing exercises is just psycho and school education. 
we don't receive those tools. Now people are waking up, but since school and high school, I've never had someone also in the religious class that you can have, for example, in, in the Mediterranean, in Mediterranean place or uh, south of France, France, Italy, you have religious lessons, but they don't give you tools for maybe faith. I don't know. It depends on the professor. But giving you simple tools like this can be very huge and very helpful. For me, two things would be important. The first one is awareness. The awareness of there is something wrong going on from an emotional perspective. But on the other side, breathing tools in order to come down all the outcomes, emotional outcomes, mental outcomes related to your individual, to the individual. For example, have a kid with you and he's screaming and everything. Instead of maybe punishing him, of course, there is a balance of everything. You can ask him, what happened to you? Okay, explain me. You are angry? Okay, perfect. Next time, this is what I do with kids. Next time, you know Spider-Man, the spider sense? Okay, despite, use the spider sense. Next time that you have something like this, at least shout, scream, and do the coherence breathing. We can call it the feather breathing, for example. This is a psychoeducation system that has to be built up, and it's starting. I saw it on the newspapers. Things are starting changing, but psychoeducation on one part, and if you don't have psychoeducation, people will start to do stuff like smoking cannabis, binge watching, playing a lot of video games. I'm a, I used to be a huge video game player. Not, video games are not wrong. It's just the way how you play them that can be wrong. However, those kind of things together. But psychoeducation is the first point, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think... think it's also a huge problem. Sorry, Patrick. Uh, coming back to Alexandros, can you imagine getting rid of geography? and replacing it with self-regulation, dealing with stress. We spent 14 years in, in formal education and we don't have the capacity to have some degree of control over our mind. Um, can I ask this question? Because it, it's intrigued me a little bit. Do we actually learn how to quieten the mind and, and not necessarily stop thinking, but to reduce the thought activity? Or are we just simply directing our attention to something else away from thought but into the body into the present moment is there an actual quietness that happens in the mind or are we simply directing our attention Angela if you want to answer no, go ahead. Alexandra go ahead. is passing go all ahead. the hard ones over do you see this Daniel passing <laughs> all the hard questions over to, to, to Angela Italian, Italian vibes I want to be educated guys <laughs> okay so, but, but maybe maybe it's it's uh, I don't know, but maybe it's a combination of both. I mean, going back, to, I mean, uh, in my limited uh, experience from this, we were talking about chemical disturbances, autonomic, but also I read I know I don't know how much tr is true that depression stems from uh, gut bacteria, but all these things I'm thinking that breathing can at least uh, reduce it a little bit because if you do slow breathing, vagus nerve, it affects all these areas, so you get like a multi-purpose vehicle. It's not gonna remove it but it may reduce it at least a little bit regardless because it doesn't it seems to me you don't know what's causing it so at least uh, um awareness of your breath and conscious breathing could at least reduce it somewhat what's your what's your thought on that angela and, and alessandro uh so so first of all i think um awareness and i think alessandro mentioned this as well um awareness plays a, a vital role when it comes to um, 
recognizing the state and um, also from a society perspective. I think the problem is really still that we very often, we still raise kids, especially boys in a way like, yeah, boys don't cry. And um, also when it comes to partners, honestly speaking, I see it very often that women want to have this soft and emotional guy on the paper, but then in the end, they can't handle when they show vulnerability. So I think that we have a society problem and that also, I think it's changing, but this is also then reflected that, you know, men are more used to not going into the feeling about not being mindful. And um, I think, yes, there needs to be more education also in school. I know that some schools, unfortunately, not so many in Europe, but I know other schools outside of Europe where people have or where kids have meditation as a class in the morning, which I think is great. And coming especially to the breathing, I think, yes, breathing connects us with the body. Breathing, and it's by contrast to meditation, where it's very likely that you have what I call the monkey mind or the ego mind that starts distracting you. And it's very hard for people to really meditate because you right away think about your job, your whatever, the stuff with your partner or the kids. So I think breathing really helps you. Um, first of all, of course, with the breathing, we we kind of program our brain and we show with the breathing that we're in a safe state. So it helps you generally to regulate yourself down, but it also helps you to really focus and to be in the moment by contrast to, um, to other kinds of exercises like pure meditation, for instance. Okay. I find oh, sorry. personally awareness of the mind is very challenging for people when the mind is all over the place. I would agree with Angela. A very direct route to helping to bring a quietness to the mind are breathing exercises, but breathing exercises that are dosed according to the individual. The thing about mental health and hyperventilation and panic disorder and associated symptoms that often breathing is affected during those times. So then when we start working on the breath, we can relive or we can bring up the symptoms. Say, for example, if we're doing really light breathing and slow breathing, we're generating a feeling of air hunger. I have tipped people into panic by simply doing that exercise. And when I started noticing it, and it was back in 2010, 2011, 2012, when I had those large numbers of people coming in through my doors, and I was making mistakes with many of them. And I never realized that how delicate breathing is for some people, that even just placing attention on the breath can be challenging for them. And after that, we dial down everything. And I would say, listen, don't worry about it. Go for a walk with your mouth closed. In actual fact, it's the best breathing exercise you could do. Do your yoga with your mouth closed with light breathing. Go dancing with your mouth closed. Get into the garden with your mouth closed. Because even if you just breathe through your nose, you're adding a resistance to your breathing to increase carbon dioxide in the blood, which is increasing blood flow to the brain and oxygen delivery to help reduce neuronal excitability. And that would come back to the question I asked earlier. And there's another factor, sleep quality. There's two factors here. One is there is a significant association between depression and sleep apnea, and very few people talk about it. And there's also a significant association between children who are snoring and mouth breathing and having apneas and brain development, that the brain develops during the formative years, especially the prefrontal cortex. And that's going to 
be responsible to some degree for the child's empathy growing up. So if the child is having disrupted sleep and if they're snoring and having apneas, they have poorer brain development and children who are snoring at age five, they have a 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. I often feel that the simplest things here are being absolutely overlooked. Mouth breathing, sleep quality, and breathing patterns. 75% of the anxiety and panic disorder population have dysfunctional breathing. So th those are just my few takes on it, those contributory factors. Um, and I do believe that the mind, it actually quietens. I could talk personally about, I used to feel that my mind was all over the place. My mind is much quieter now without me having to direct my attention anywhere. So I don't always agree with the stance on mindfulness. Because people who are teaching mindfulness will often say that your mind doesn't quiet and you're simply directing your attention. My mind has got quieter. And if my mind has got quieter, anybody else's mind can get quieter too. We can learn how to quieten the mind and we don't have to go to the really challenging extremes. And I think Western society is doing this. And there's another conversation here is the language that we use with men is much different to the language that we use with women. Women are more open. I don't think too many men are going to go into a bookstore and buy a book on anxiety and walk down the street shaking it, showing I have a book on anxiety. And there's another thing, and I'm throwing things into the mix. This is just my spewing out. So this is my five minutes of limelight. How about when we were growing up in the 70s and 80s? Well, I'm that bit older than you guys. We, we were in hurling matches. We were getting into bouts. We were getting into fights, unfortunately. But in some ways, it gave us some degree of resilience, especially on a, on a, on a sports field. And if we're too soft, it doesn't then give us the resilience when life throws a curveball at us. And I think there's a role for sports there. You know, so there are just a few things anyway. What are your thoughts? I don't know where you're going to start with that one, though, or who's going to start. Can I go to the rabbit hole once again? <laughs> Very well. Okay. So for a resi more resilience perspective aspect, there is one thing, especially when you study psychology, you also study everything related to the world of animals. And I love it so much, especially when you pay attention to tigers or uh, gorillas in the group of gorillas, in the tribe of gorillas, the way how, or especially tigers, the way how they learn how to hunt is by fighting against each other when there are babies, for example, puppies. And the way how more you will have a huge brotherhood, sisters, and more they will have different sisters and brother, more they will find their expertise in hunting. And then the mother will take back the tools of their, their psychoeducation and bring them to hunt and teach them. So the role of sport is also inherent to us in, in that especially from this kind of animal side that we still have, of course. So those kind of instincts that are inhabiting us. I would like then to bounce back, especially on the role of functional breathing in mental health, especially from a neuroscientific perspective. When talking, we have all the left hemisphere that is turned on, especially the broca, broca, the broca area, which is the area of oral production, for example, is very active. If you mouth breathe, this area is active, but together with the left part of the cerebellum. So we can see that one 
only one hemisphere is tendentially more activated. This is a research from last year, 2021 in Japan. I loved it. Also, the role how your brain, also the neuroscillation, I mean, also the, the way how your brain is active under a functional magnetic resonance is totally different between mouth breathing and nose breathing. We can see that, and those were the conclusions of the researchers, that through nose breathing, the mental activity was, especially the neuroexcitability was reduced. Same thing on ADHD kids, more they tended to be mouth breather, more the prefrontal cortex area was activated because more oxygen was there. And when we talk about the prefrontal cortex, we talk about executive functions. So for example, taking the car keys and opening up or maybe preparing something, writing it down, those kind of things. And those cognitive skills were hindered at this point. Switching back to a nose breathing perspective, it helped them to reduce those kind of neuro excitability and to settle down. And of course, this kind of mental activity from a neural neuronal perspective will influence your mental activity and it will be more harmonious and more calm down and tame down as you said for you for example the fact of being a nasal breather and do those kind of breathing help you to just not react too much during your mental traveling along the journey of the day and not react to the contents of your mind so a good way to start is, yes, to start with the nasal breathing. And you can see also the switch that will impact the way how you breathe at night. However, going back to mindfulness, and this is an experience that I've done, especially in psychiatry, not for me, I was not a patient, okay? So I was on the other side. Um, when I started with a girl, she suffered of agoraphobia. So she was afraid in her case, in her specific case, to be outside because she felt insecure, she felt a lot of anxiety, she was scared, especially seeing mountains from far away was hard for her because she was feeling pressure, only watching the mountains far away and she was by, by car. And what happened is I asked her to do some kind of mindfulness body scan exercise, the well-known body scan, and she felt panicking. And she said, I, felt, I feel a space, but it's a void. It's not space, it's void and it's scary. I said, okay, listen, Let's put it back, go back to nasal breathing. Of course, we worked for it. And then we will start with the brief light exercise. The sense of hair hunger gave her a mental, a cognitive hook where she was able to perceive her body. But in another way, she was, she was experiencing her body in another way, not from a void perspective, but from a closer perspective and healthy and safe perspective, just by hair hunger. And this worked. This worked. So this was my jump on those kind of uh, of all the awareness and neuro perspective dynamics around it, which can be very useful. Maybe the body scan from the mindfulness, you cannot have those tools. But however, what you can do is to do, for example, some coherent breathing or breathe light, and then maybe apply a body scan over your breath or just a mindful breath and mindful breathing. And that can be nice too. I don't know if it makes sense, people. Yep, I think it's great. Uh, Angela, can you, yeah, I was uh, talking about, uh, Alessandro, about body awareness. Can you go back to the difference, uh, Angela, between, uh, you said, skydiving and now freediving that we had a lot of discussions about? Because yeah. body awareness and freediving, breathing, and what happens to the body and the brain and all that seems like somebody said that was the ultimate meditation. So I'm wondering... 
from your experience, because you're a free diver, what, what your thoughts are on as far as, uh, yeah, how you feel I, when doing that. And, and that could be helpful. So again, body awareness to the extreme, maybe. Yeah. I'm not a free, I'm, ah, Angela, okay. I'm not, because I was going to say I'm not a free diver. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're very welcome to join. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Um, yeah, so so I think what's very important is that that skydiving and free driving because we kind of I don't want to put them in the same box at all, even though from the outside they're perceived as extreme sports. Um, they're very, very different. Um, I think we already shed some light on the skydiving side where we um mentioned that it is um yeah, it is you have a lot of adrenaline, you have this survival mode basically that's also kicking in. Um, and in freediving, it's it's very different. In freediving, it's it's not about adrenaline. In freediving, it is really about mindfulness. We're working a lot on CO2 tolerance, we're working a lot of being in the moment. It's more about finding a flow state because you mentioned flow state so i want to pick up that word under pressure so how can you relax in this situation when you maybe i don't know wherever you go 40 50 100 meter down and you're still slow down your heart rate and this involves a lot of breathing exercises as well because what we're really focusing on is slowing down the heart rate, slowing down the entire system, signaling the body that we're safe and relaxing while we're going down, especially in the in the deep dive free diving. We also do it in the dynamic, but in the free diving, in the deep dive free diving, you also have this, this section where you basically only free fall. So you, you dive down, you swim, you pull, whatever kind of discipline you're doing until, I don't know, maybe 25 meters. And then you have what we call a negative buoyancy. And then you only free fall. And you're purely focusing on your relaxation, on being with yourself. And that's why this is very different. I, I, I was curious, and also, Patrick, your view, how, how to just the preparation for a dive and the training, all that preparation... Uh, would uh, potentially be good for somebody who is depressed because it's such a such a focus on breathing and body awareness that and relaxation just and without actual dive and then the dive is something else. I don't have experience, of, but you do, Angela. So, I mean, I'm I'm thinking that are there less people that if I don't know if there's any data that are depressed in freedom because it's such a, I mean, it's you know you're so focused on breathing and breathing correctly the whole time. And then being there, what's your thoughts on, on that? That you actually, you focus on relaxing and that's your training. A lot of it, I guess you have to train on it as well. So what I find interesting is that I still, um, because I also coach um, free divers in, in, in breathing and mindful and, 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 um, and, and mental um, coaching, I find very often, even in free divers, a dysfunctional breathing pattern outside of the free diving preparation so we learn functional breathing but i still find a lot of free divers who have a dysfunctional breathing pattern in their daily life how is that possible if you <laughs> i mean if you go down to like say 50 meters you must have a tolerance you know for low oxygen high co2 i'm imagining so it, it's it's a that would that would surprise me at least to to uh, for somebody who's uh, you know doing free diving but 
So I'm not necessarily talking about the world-class athletes um, who go mm. down to, to 100 meters, but I mm. still see it in a lot of athletes. And I think it's, um, first of all, I still see, um, no, nasal breathing is not very common in the free diving, um, you know, because a lot of free divers still breathe up through their mouth. Um, very few free divers. I, I do, I use nasal breathing for a very long part of my breathe up um, before I go down. This is not what a lot of free divers do, um, but we focus on diaphragmatic breathing. Um, when it comes to the CO2 tolerance, it's, um, yeah, of course, breath, breath hold. And I think that was Patrick also mentioning when it comes to resilience, we do a lot of breath holds and breath holds definitely build up CO2 tolerance and they build up resilience in your brain and that definitely helps you. And of course, we're using different kinds of breathing exercises to slow down the heart rate. I think it's going to be like, if we think about breathing in the main, everybody is going to be impacted by trauma and life situations, genetic predispositions, asthma, things like that. So. The free diving community is going to be no different to any other group. You're going to have a cohort of individuals who have had trauma, who have a background of asthma, who have genetic predisposition to a strong chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. And even though the sport itself, but I would agree with Daniel, if you think that somebody can hold their breath for maybe one, two, three minutes, that they, they would have a reduced chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. And that would then translate into a light and slow everyday breathing pattern. But I think, Angela, in terms of the mouth breathing, were you talking about the mouth breathing just prior to a dive to do lung packing, but not to hyperventilate? Because I think we need to have a discussion on underwater blackout, which is really dangerous. And the other thing is, were you talking about the mouth breathing of the diver outside of their diving? How do they breathe during sleep? How do they breathe during physical exercise? How do they breathe in their normal everyday pattern? And how would you diagnose functional breathing? Do you use the boat score? Or do you use other tools? So there's a few questions thrown in there. Um, yeah, so I think we want to start. I hope I remember every of your questions. Otherwise, please don't depend on me, me to remember. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I start with the hyperventilation. First of all, I think this is really important to mention because there is a misperception. Um, we don't hypervent in, in free diving. This is extremely dangerous, and we don't hyperventilate in free diving because the risk of a blackout is just too much. What we're doing is we're focusing on breathing exercises that helps us to slow down the heart rate. Mm -hmm. Also, with lots of breath hold training, we're increasing our CO2 tolerance. And it is important that we feel this urge to breathe. We, we suppress us, we deal with it. We want to relax into the contraction of the diaphragm, but you don't want to have a, a delay in that and a hyperventilation because the risk of a blackout is too high. So this on the hyperventilation side. Some do a mild hyperventilation, but mostly after underbreathing just to balance it out. So. This is a, a misconception still that people from the outside freediving world really often come and say, you do hyperventilate. No, I don't. Um, second part about the mouth breathing. Yes, of course. I mean, when you're at the buoy and or in the pool, um, you at a certain point, you put on your nose clip or your mask or whatever. 
Um, and a lot of people breathe up through the mouth the entire time. Um, some people, I do nasal breathing. I know another oxygen advantage colleague who also does free diving. He also does nasal breathing. Um, it just helps me to slow down more. And um, so, yeah, the, the nose clip is a, a stumbling block in that way. Um, but when it comes to the outside um, of free diving that you mentioned is, um, I, and that's what I mean. Yeah, I think a lot of free divers could be more efficient and I don't want to focus too much on free diving and have a higher and better bolt score and have better sleep if they would focus on nasal breathing also on the outside of free diving. Because yes, those breath holds bring us to this good CO2 tolerance, but you might still have bad sleep your, your bolt score might not be at the level where you wonder where it could be because you have this dysfunctional breathing pattern in your daily life. You're breathing through your mouth during sleep and you're breathing through your mouth while you're doing your daily work, daily exercise. It's amazing. We had an oxygen advantage refresher meeting um, during the week and one of the instructors is working at an international an athlete at an international level. And I think he said that the athlete's bolt score was six seconds. So here's a highly trained individual competing at international level with a bolt score of six seconds. In other words, for anybody listening who doesn't know the bolt score, you take a normal breath in and out through your nose, you pinch your nose and you hold until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. Within six seconds, that individual feels the need to breathe. So sometimes we assume that physical training improves breathing patterns and there is a need isn't there to kind of look at our breathing outside of the physical training outside of free diving outside of anything else that we're doing because ultimately you could be doing one thing very well but then you're going around and you're spending that the other 23 hours or 22 hours a day and you're almost going backwards a little bit and nobody's putting that piece together um so thanks for that angela any more contributions, guys? So, so I I would think then oxygen advantage method, which is you know focus a lot on the down to twenty three hours plus during day, would then complement even free diving, which I thought was more since they're so focused on almost breathing alone versus any other sport that they were like their sport of their own. But you think that they could benefit from focusing on slowing down the, their breathing throughout the day and also get better sleep in, in your experience, Angela. So that would be a compliment even to experienced free divers. Yes. Okay, that is that is interesting. Uh, I, have, I, I have something to, to add, and it is something that we, it's a method, it's a breathing method that is quite, quite famous, the one from Breathology by Stig Severinsen. And Stig Severinsen is a, is a biology PhD owner and he has experienced the benefits of uh, breath the diving and breath holding over a group of ptsd army navy seals and just as listening just listening the interview after with the navy seals many of them were able to refer that they were capable to dream after five years after the last uh, fight for example and they didn't dream for five years so I like also the way of, especially for subdiving breathing techniques, especially for being touched with the body without feeling also the sense of void, which is 
quite amazing. And also the way how you can also handle your mental activity from this. And I don't know if, the, if he has published anything, but it was really good. It was really good from how to handle PTSD. Because why did I like it? Because there is a lot of focus on the hyperventilation, you know, from growth, holotropic breathing or rebirthing. And the thing is, uh, the mental, I mean, the, um, the idea behind those methods is very cathartic and catharsis for who is belonging to the world of psychoanalysis is when you say something, you actually expel it. It's the way of to expel pain by just saying it, for example. However, holotropic breathing for handling PTSD, in my opinion, I saw a lot of patients who've been through those kind of methods. They were not, they didn't like it. And it's like adding a controlled trauma over an uncontrolled trauma. And there are other ways, softer, softer ways in order to cope with such disorders, which can be very beneficial. Subdiving is also one of them because it can be gentle on one side. I don't know, Angela, but just, for example, holding your breath, not only for the fact that you can be in touch with yourself, but also that you can achieve a challenge, maybe for someone holding his breath for one minute and 20 seconds. It can be something amazing, also for a kid. I don't know what are your thoughts about that. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, and I think we touched the part of the of the resilience. So it it after a while your your brain will adopt to it and you find relaxation to that in, in that. Um for me personally, um I know a lot of freedivers hate it, but static, um, which is the discipline where you only float on the surface of the water and hold your breath. This is one of my favorite disciplines because it really helps me to be with myself. I enjoy this time of quietness, just floating five, five and a half minutes on the surface of the water, holding my breath. I mean, of course, towards the end, it becomes um, uncomfortable. That That's part of the exercise. Um, but I like being in this state. I like just holding my breath and letting the thoughts flow and focus on my body. I think I just wonder as well, like breath holding generates a feeling of air hunger and some people with panic disorder and anxiety have an exaggerated fear towards that suffocation. They're terrified of suffocation. And if we give a controlled dose of air hunger, it's almost that we can desensitize our, their, their reaction. Well, I believe we can desensitize it. And of course, there's other things going on, such as the brain by regulating breathing regulates its own excitability in terms of what Alex was talking about, neuronal excitability. If you have somebody say with PTSD or somebody who is prone to panic disorder, we don't always know how, how they are going to react to suffocation. Yes. And I think it's really important is to start and almost dip our toe into the water. Like I started, I had a class with anxiety and panic disorder during the week. I had them hold their breath starting off just for three seconds. Now, people might say that that's, that's useless, but I want to make them feel safe. And I think that's something that kind of maybe goes against in Western society, as we've kind of purported to that very often we, we want to see the bigger, the better. But for anybody who's wanting to start off summer, let's dip our toe into the water doing your breath hold for three seconds, breathing normally for 15, breath hold for three, breathing normally for 15, then go on to five seconds, et cetera. Then go into breathe light. And even with the breathe light, I've seen people go into anxiety and panic disorder. Yep. 
because it was four minutes of air hunger and they weren't able to cope with it. And we have to, you know, we're taught, like, I'll tell you exactly what I did. I had 10 or 15 people in a class in Dublin and they were all there with anxiety. They were pretty much all females and they were young. They were in their early 20s and I had them do light breathing and slow breathing. And I knew by their facial expressions that they were getting stressed. And unfortunately, in my limited knowledge back then, I actually encouraged them to keep going with it. And it was the worst information that I gave them. And this is where working face to face with individuals imparts you with an experience that is really, really important. That often this is not indifferent. When you're working with large groups, you can't get that personal experience of the the one to one. Um, I'm just thinking about free diving. Does is there anybody ever talking? Now this could be a totally stupid statement. Is when we are in the womb, we're 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 surrounded by liquid. Is there is there anything in terms of that that the comfort and the safety in the womb that once we're going into the water? I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. Maybe it sounds bizarre, but silence. Uh, Obviously, uh, the wrong statement. I I don't know. I don't know whether I I got get the question right. Um, the thing is, the thing is, um. Maybe maybe free maybe a freediver's brain works a bit different. I know that a lot of non-freedivers usually they approach me and they say, I can't it it scares the hell out of me to just imagine being down at 40, 50 meters and um just surrounded by water. For me, that's my safe place. For me, this is a place where I'm entirely with myself, where I have this quietness, um, where it's just me and the water. So my mind works differently. And um, so I can't tell about others, but for me, this is really a safe place. And I hear this also from, from yeah, also from other freedivers quite often. And I think also as we learn more and we focus more on being in this moment and being with ourselves and being with our body, it is really about enjoyment. I personally, and I think this also goes a little bit back to what you say with the with the breath hold and training the brain. I know that some people kind of force themselves to do something. For me personally, how I train is if I don't feel comfortable, I turn around. Because I want to have in my brain the sensation that I want to have, that I'm going to have a beautiful dive, which is just relaxed. I can force myself down. I can force myself down and maybe struggle. I might get equalization problems. But for me personally, my approach and also what I got from my coach is getting into your brain this idea and this feeling that it's going to be a beautiful and relaxed dive and if i'm not feeling comfortable i go up and that's fine but if i force myself down i'm creating in my brain this idea that it's going to be horrible that i might suffer from contractions that i might anything might happen down there and i don't want to have this feeling in my brain for the next dive but patrick i think uh... <clears throat> and Angela, what, going back to what you said, Patrick, about the the breathe light uh, and even maybe a very well slow breathing for somebody who suffers from anxiety, that they have to shift their breathing from the subconscious to the conscious. And it's such a big shift that they can't handle it versus what you found out later on with the sm- many small breath holes, like every 20 or 30 seconds. It's not really, you're not changing your breathing. You're just doing small little breath holes 
and increase in the CO2, slightly increase in nitric oxide, slightly, and in control, that that's maybe the first step in in the, before you go to the second step, because it's such a big difference from, from breathing a certain way 22,000 times a day, and then you shift it, so it becomes a stressor, even though it should not be a stressor. So, may, you know, those are things that, you like you said, Patrick, you have to look at somebody, see how they should be relaxing, because most people do get relaxed, but some don't, and then you have to find another way. So I think uh, I think we talked about this before, but I think that's that's the right way. Or do you agree with that, Patrick, that that... That yeah, totally. And you know what, Daniel, it's it's people feeling safe and people realizing that physiologically the breath is amazingly powerful when used in the right way. And I know there's different breathing techniques. And, you know, sometimes I am probably biased towards light, slow and low breathing because I've been trying to address chronic hyperventilation for 21 years with people. That was my space. And then I don't always understand the acute hyperventilation, but my personality doesn't suit the acute hyperventilation. I'm an introvert. I had a conversation with somebody yesterday and she too is a, a breathing instructor. She's not oxygen advantage. She's an introvert and she loves to slow. So sometimes I'm feeling that it's the personality type which, which is drawn towards either an extroverted outward display of breathing or a very introverted inward display of breathing. It doesn't really matter once it works for that person. And I'm going to say that because I do have my own biases. I'm going to come back to Angela's at the start, and I know we're conscious of time. Working with men, I typically got pushed back. Daniel, it was working with you. Remember, we were working with two premiership footballers. I don't know if you were there with us on that Zoom call. We won't mention who they were. And I was talking about pre-match anxiety. And I got total pushback. They they said it. He said to me, "It's almost that you're telling me that I have anxiety going into the game," and I wasn't saying that. Like I was saying, here are the tools to help with pre-match anxiety. So after he said that to me, I'm saying like it is the language. And the next meeting we had, we spoke about here are the tools to get you into flow states. And I feel men in particular, we have to realize that. These techniques are very powerful and don't consider them left of field. And it's not necessarily that you're using it for anxiety, but what you are using it. I use these techniques all the time. I will give you an example. I had a really high powered situation about five weeks ago. I can't disclose it. I was interviewed by six really high powered individuals for one and a half hours under questions. And it's all televised. And it's to go out internationally. They left me standing outside the door for seven minutes before I went into the studio. And I was thinking afterwards, they did that to rattle me. So they did everything possible to rattle me before I went in to put me on air. Now, I felt my heart rate increasing when I was standing outside the door. And one of the people who were there told me to take a deep breath. And I says, no. And I started just taking a soft breath in and a really slow, gentle breath out. And nobody to the outside world, I'm just standing there. Nobody knows I'm doing anything. And all I'm doing is just slowing down everything. And by slowing down breathing, I'm stimulating the vagus nerve and secreting uh, acetylcholine, which is causing a slowing of the heart. And I brought my heart rate down. And I walked into that room and I had the critical mind aside. And I was in present moment. Now, 20 years ago, 
25 years ago, I would have been a nervous wreck. I would have faltered completely. I would have gone into a fight or flight response. And the only difference was because I knew a simple tool that I carry in my everyday life as you do too. And this is the power for men. This is giving you the ability to improve your focus and concentration. And I don't know if we want to use that word resilience, but what I would use is to be able to confront situations feeling calmer and more collected. And then you come up with a better solution. Because the last thing we want to do is go into a difficult situation in a fight or flight response, because all the brain wants to do is get us away from the situation. So I'm going to put those thoughts out there and we'll kind of, there's, in the next five minutes, we'll wrap up. There's uh, yeah, one thing that there, there's one thing that I would like to say, because Patrick mentioned briefing style with the personality styles, the correlation. Patrick, you know me, I'm the opposite of you. I'm totally extrovert in my case. You know me from this perspective. So in my case, for handling, for example, it's not my fault, guys, it's I'm extrovert. So if, for example, I have to face something and it will triggers me, the first thing that I have to do in my case, this is the difference with an introvert. I have to scream or I have to shout bad words. I won't say them here, I swear. And the second thing is I will hyperventilate, but like, or breath of fire, or I will have a fast walk or punching whatsoever because there are too much energy in my case and I have to slow down and then I will introduce a brief light exercise because I have to I'm already agitated I will agitate myself a little bit more with those breathing in order to then calm down of course I won't I wouldn't do that following Angela advices before a sub diving or a free diving for example okay but for another situa situational context where I have to face some adversities or have a talk with someone, I would have to do something. And then also I will play on another lever, which is the emotional lever. I'll make a joke at the beginning in order to calm down everyone or to do a compliment to someone because or for the room or for preparation. I will do something like this for handling the emotional context and use the breathing in order to calm down. And then also during the talk, there's another thing that I usually do is a pause between sentences, because I know that that pause for me is really important because it can help me to manage my mental and all the things that I have to do and to say. But on the other side, these times to the public just to absorb and to, ah, cool. Okay. And all the atmosphere is settled somehow. I don't know if it makes sense. Yeah. So it does. It does. I think it does. it's great. Yeah. And Patrick and Angela, I want to finish off and ask you, well, it actually goes to Alessandro as well, but the, what you did, uh, Patrick, with a three-second breath hold, the many small breath holds with the ones that were suffering from anxiety and panic attacks, versus uh, for you, uh, Angela, where you're saying your safe place is in the water, which is three minutes, kind of tells me that, you know, the three minutes for you is the same as the three seconds. So the breath hold is a spectrum. You know, so you, you, you uh, if you shift it, vice versa, it would be a complete disaster. But the three second is perfect. And for if you suffer from anxiety attacks and three minutes for somebody like you, what were, what are your thoughts on, on that as far as personalizing? So you can't have one size fits all. Yeah, I think that's that's important. And I think, as, as Patrick mentioned, it's important to look at in the individual. What is the whether I kind of coaching breathwork or whatever you're doing 
what is the starting point of the individual and not stressing it too much. You don't do that with intensive breath holds and you're not doing that if a person has a very low CO2 tolerance and is fine with three seconds. Then, And there is there is never anything useless. So um, I agree, totally agree with Patrick. If three seconds is your first challenge, then start with the three seconds. There is a theory. This was that's what that was a big question in the seventies. Is CO two producing panic attacks? This was maybe Klein's theory from biology, or alkaline, or maybe alkaline or hyperventilation will trigger anxiety or panic attacks because in the third, fourth, and fifth symptoms of the panic attacks is actually uh, the um, you, breathlessness, the sensation of breathlessness, hyperventilation. However, I have people with anxiety that have a high bolt score, a very high bolt score, and maybe that the hyperventilation for them will trigger all the sensations that are reconfigured as naughty, not very healthy, not very good. Or on the other side, people with a very, I like to say, very, a very high CO2 sensitivity won't maybe like something that will have maybe a low bolt score and that will trigger for them the a little bit of maybe a two millimercure maybe or maybe a little bit of enhancement of CO2 level for them will trigger a panic attack. So from one side, you have panic attack because of the alkaline situation induced by hyperventilation. But on the other side, something similar, also maybe without hyperventilation, but just a strong sensitivity to CO2. Those are two schools, but for me, I faced both of them. And this is why I usually, when we have, for me, when I have someone in front of me, it's a new, totally challenge. It's blank and we have to start everything also from, okay, where's your diaphragm? You know where it is? Just, okay, you feel it? You feel that soft thing? Yeah, super. This is the diaphragm. And then we continue like this while other people are more documented about it and you're working in another way. I don't know. And those are two profiles that I saw. Can I ask you this question, Alexandra? People who are prone to panic attacks and they're sitting in front of you and they're not having a panic attack, but how is their breathing pattern? How is their normal everyday breathing? In general, I know there's exceptions. In general, so far, people had, had for me in front of me a quite decent bolt core, around 14, I mean, quite decent, 14, 20. You have to work. However, you know, in those kind of situations, especially in the clinical context, you're in touch with your everyday life and you're talking about your everyday life. So, and you will talk about stressful events. So there is a bias and there is, and this bias is you can overcome it by asking to your patient or to your client, please do the bold test and, or maybe the MBT because not everyone can do the MBT, do the bold test every day. And we'll do the average in the end. And afterward, we're going to review it and we're going to see what happened during each day. But of course, there is a thing that I like from the Nijmegen and it has been a, the Nijmegen test questionnaire. If you pay attention to the questionnaire and to all the symptoms that are listed, many of them are anxiety related. And in, 2020, in 2019, they've done a study on the Nijmegen questionnaire in order to see if the symptoms that were listed the anxiety-related symptoms were good in order to diagnose maybe somehow an anxiety disorder. And it was correlated positive. And as a first, the first thing that I take a look on when I have an emergent 
is I would spot all those symptoms and see, hmm, there is something interesting there. Or no, maybe no, it's purely biochemical or there is something, there is a clinical uh, issue over here, not a mental one. Understood. That's cool. I think we'll draw to a close. Um, what Alessandro was talking about was the Nijmegen questionnaire, which you'll find online. It's 16 questions and you fill it out. And if your score is over 23, it's a suggestive diagnosis of a breathing pattern disorder. Traditionally, it was hyperventilation syndrome, but more now it's an umbrella term, breathing pattern disorder. But what Alessandro is saying, the connection between the symptoms of anxiety and the symptoms of breathing pattern disorder. Yep. Listen, I think it was a great conversation. Um, I think there were some very interesting aspects of it. Does anybody want to draw to a close? Or someone wants to jump into the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, I think what I would like to mention towards the end um, to people who are listening is that breathing exercises, I think Alessandro agrees on that, it can't replace a, a medical treatment. So if somebody is really suffering from depression, um, it is important to see a medical practitioner. However, breathing exercise can make a very good contribution to improve stress anxiety and also it is very accessible i think nowadays a lot of people have problems in finding a medical practitioner it's especially since COVID, it's really hard to get access to um, psychological health care and and breathing exercises are a very accessible tool yeah i think that's uh that's that's a wrap there. Uh, anything else, Alessandro? No, Daniel. No, really. You said <laughs> everything, guys. Super. That was a super. Daniel, super don't podcast. even be giving Alessandro any <laughs> opportunity here, right? <laughs> Listen, guys. Great stuff. Fair play, and of course, Alessandro knows that I'm just kidding with him. Um, yeah. Thanks very much. Until the next. No, time. you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>